0: We're going to start out in the book of Isaiah, chapter 10. I just want to read a few verses from Isaiah, chapter 10, beginning at verse 24. Um, it's been kind of sporadic here lately with some other responsibilities, but we're in the midst of what I would call a little bit of a mini-series in our, within our series on the book of Revelation that spanned a couple of years. And we've been talking about the person and work of Antichrist. So, this is really part three in our mini sermon series on the Antichrist. We've had a few of these mini series in our study of Revelation. I recall we did an interesting mini series on the doctrine of the pre tribulational rapture of the church as revealed in Scripture, not just 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, but throughout the Scriptures when comparing Scripture with Scripture. We also did a mini-series on Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy which is key to understanding not just the book of Daniel and God's plan and purpose for the Jews but it's also key to understanding this book of Revelation. Okay? I remember we took considerable time to talk about the seven churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. And so when we study God's Word, we have to be willing to go where it takes us. And that's what we're doing right now. We've been studying Antichrist, some things I didn't cover when he was introduced to us back in chapter 6 as the white horse rider, the imitator, the imitator of Messiah. We've talked about his first appearance in the Scriptures. He appears right alongside Jesus Christ in Genesis 3.15 as the seed of the serpent. We've talked about his many names in Scripture, particularly in the Psalms, as relates to um, his relationship to the Jewish remnant during the tribulation. And then last time we talked about how the scriptures indicate Antichrist or the pseudo-Messiah will be a Jew. Okay, We looked at the word Antichrist. It doesn't just mean opposed to Christ, it means instead of Christ. He's a, a counterfeit, he's a pseudo-Christ that the Jewish people will be deceived into believing is Antichrist as will the rest of the world. We talked about Jesus' reference to another of the same kind as him that would come in his own name. Jesus told the Jews, I've come in my Father's name, you don't believe me, but another, not hetero, different, but other like me will come in his name and you'll follow him. That was a reference to Antichrist. And that word other means of the same genus or kind, which indicates one like Jesus. Jesus came as a Jew. Okay, we looked at Ezekiel 28. We often recognize that chapter as referring to Satan as the king of Tyrus. But the first few verses of that chapter, the first ten verses, refer to the prince of Tyrus. And it's mentioned that he will die the death of the uncircumcised. Well, who are the circumcised people? The Jews. And if you weren't circumcised, why would it say you would be dying the death of an uncircumcised? So another indication. Um. And then in Daniel, it talks about him not following the God of his fathers. Ezekiel 21, he's called the king of Babylon, but he's also called in that same passage the profane wicked prince of Israel. And so there's many indications there that Antichrist will be a Jew. And as a Jew, he will deceive the Jewish people. Now, Muslims would follow someone that's not Arabic or Arab. Catholics would follow someone that's not European. The, church would, the, the, the false church will follow anyone. But the Jewish people won't follow a Messiah that's not Jewish. They just won't do it. So in my opinion, it necessitates and the scriptures indicate that he will be Jewish. And that's where we stopped last time. There is some pretty detailed pictures of Antichrist in the scriptures, particularly from John here in Revelation, Paul in the Thessalonian letters, and in the book of Daniel. And this is a nice little chart that tells you where to study these things. I gave this out. I've got one left. If one somebody wants a copy of it, feel free to take it. I'll put it right here. But let's look at Isaiah chapter 10. I'm trying to get my thoughts straight. I'm preaching from 2 Chronicles 33 tonight. So I'm going to try not to mix up these messages in my head this morning. There's some overlap for sure, but... Isaiah 10.24, Thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, He's addressing the Jewish people that dwell in Zion, Be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee, after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, And the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him, according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. This is a message given to the people of Israel during the days of King Hezekiah. As we know that the Assyrians had carried away captive the northern kingdom of Israel and sacked and destroyed the capital of Samaria in 722 BC, and in the days of Hezekiah Sennacherib and the Assyrian armies came down and besieged the city. And they were under threat. And there was a letter sent threatening the people to surrender or be destroyed. And remember the story of Hezekiah spreading it before the Lord. And Isaiah the prophet came and said, don't worry, I will take care of this problem, the Lord said. And the Assyrians, an angel smote many thousands in the camp of the Assyrians that night. And they returned to their own land. And Sennacherib died. Um... And so this was in the context of this, those days is when this prophecy was given. So it has a very immediate fulfillment in God's deliverance of the Jewish people from the hand of Sennacherib. We see that in the prophet Isaiah, in the book of, book of the Kings, the book of the Chronicles. But it's also got an ultimate fulfillment. Remember that Old Testament prophecy always has a near horizon and a horizon. It has a shadow fulfillment, a tight and an ultimate fulfillment, an anti-type. And there are certain clues here that tells us that the ultimate fulfillment of this promise is in, anti- is in the Jews' deliverance from Antichrist, of whom Sennacherib, an Assyrian king, was a type. If you'll look through here, it says um, that... Uh, for a very little while, and the indignation shall cease. The indignation against the Jewish people in that context ceased with the defeat of Sennacherib, but it didn't cease completely through the ages. It's continued to happen. So this points to a time when the indignation against Israel will cease completely. Okay? And it says that God's anger would cease in the destruction of the Assyrians. Did God's anger with Israel cease in the days of Sennacherib? No, because Hezekiah's son Manasseh was the most wicked king there ever was and God's anger was white hot in his day so much so that the Babylonian captivity became a foregone conclusion there was no escape. So this wasn't a day in which the indignation against Israel ceased when God's anger against them ceased with the destruction of the Syrians. But he goes on to say that this Assyrian would oppress them for a while, but in the end he would be overthrown quickly. Just like the king of the Midianites. And that his burden would be taken away and his yoke would be destroyed at the end of verse 27. Why? Because of the anointing. What is the anointing? Go to Psalm 2. The Bible says that God has anointed His Holy One, Messiah who will sit upon his holy hill of Mount Zion. Why will the yoke of the Assyrian be broken from the people of Israel? Because of the anointing of Messiah. So this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in the days of Antichrist. And here he is referred to as the Assyrian. Okay, The Assyrians were not Jewish in their ethnicity. Abraham came from Assyria Ur of the Chaldees beyond the Euphrates River. But Antichrist is clearly referred to here as the Assyrian. So, how is it that he could be a Jew and yet an Assyrian? We're going to talk about that for a moment. When we look at the different four views of Antichrist, we see several things about where he comes from. Okay? In Daniel chapter 7, he comes out of the fourth beast, that diverse beast that was strong as iron okay that diverse beast that was diverse from all the others now we don't know who that beast is until Daniel 9 with the prophecy of the 70 weeks when we know that that prince is the one his people would destroy the temple and the sanctuary so now we know it's the Roman empire antichrist in Daniel chapter 7 the little horn arises out of the four beasts fourth beast which, or the fourth Gentile kingdom, which we learn is the Roman Empire. So we know he comes out of the Roman Empire. Okay? We also learn in Daniel chapter 8 that he arises out of the, one of the four horns of the he-goat. In the prophecy of Daniel 8, the he-goat is identified as the kingdom of Greece. Okay? And Antichrist is one of the little horns that arises out of the four horns that were born when Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided. So not only does he come out of the Roman Empire, he comes out of the Greek part of the Roman Empire. All of the Grecian Empire was absorbed into the Roman Empire. Greece wasn't overthrown by the Romans as the Persians were overthrown by the Greeks and as the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians. It was absorbed. And much of Greek culture and Greek Greek government was absorbed into the Roman Empire and carried forth by it. So Daniel 8 indicates he comes out of the Greek part of the Roman Empire. Then we get here to Isaiah and he's called the Assyrian. Okay, A part of the Greek Empire was the ancient realm of Assyria. So he comes out of the Roman Empire, the Greek part of the Roman Empire and the Assyrian part of the Greek part of the Roman Empire. There's no contradiction there. And then finally in Ezekiel 21 and Isaiah 14 he's called the King of Babylon. So he comes out of the Roman Empire, out of the Greek part of the Roman Empire, out of the Assyrian part of the Greek part of the Roman Empire and he's the King of Babylon. Well, What's very interesting is when you look back over history when the Greek Empire was divided Alexander's kingdoms became four kingdoms under his generals Okay, and then the the two of those kingdoms the king of the north and the king of the south the Syrians the Seleucids and the Ptolemites which was in North Africa became dominant and down through the years up until Rome the king of the north which was Syria And the king of the south, Egypt, the Ptolemites, they were always fighting. And the book of Daniel writes all of these things ahead of time in great detail. In Daniel chapter, I believe it's 10, uh, and it gets into, um, I think, chapter 11 as well. Very detailed. In fact, a lot of so-called scholars um, have claimed that there's no way this can be prophecy. It's so detailed um, that... It had to be written after the fact. It must have been a second Daniel that lived and mixed his writings with the real Daniel. That's foolishness. There's lots of things the Bible says happened that we believe or we think can't happen and must be some sort of error. And then reality or uh, circumstances prove that to be possible. I was studying for my message tonight last week and looking at some... Uh, old Testament chronology, and it hit me as I was looking at um, King Hezekiah that he, according to the scriptural chronology, was born when his dad was only 11 years old. And I thought, how in the world could how could an 11 year old boy father a son? There must of course, the scholars say there's something wrong and somebody made a, made, a, made a mistake or whatever. And I thought, no, I believe God's Word. When I approach God's Word, I do it with faith. I don't assume it's wrong, I assume it's right. So I just began to a little bit online, and it was interesting. I found an article from 2014 um, out of Australia. I mean, not of Australia, out of New Zealand. In Auckland, New Zealand, there was an article about an 11-year-old boy that impregnated a woman and was the world's youngest father. So obviously it can happen. The Bible's not wrong, and a current headline proves that. So it was kind of like a 35-year-old woman or something. I don't know what that was all about, but it was a true story. But God's Word is true. And what I find interesting, uh, you know, when Daniel lays these things out uh, in... It's chapter 11, not chapter 10. Uh, it's in detail, and history shows it all to be true. Okay, But we got this king of the north versus the king of the south. And then we have Antichrist referred to as the king of the north, which was the Syrian king, the Seleucid king. Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of the north. He foreshadowed Antichrist. And then we jump to the time of the end. So we know Antichrist is Jewish, He's associated with the Roman Empire. He's associated with the Greek Empire. He's associated with Assyria. He's associated with Babylon. And he's associated with the king of the north, which was the Greek, the Greek uh, Syrian king that descended from one of Alexander's generals. So, how can all this be? If you look at an ancient map, there are three major cities that are associated with this part of the world with Assyria, with Babylon with the Greek Empire, with the Roman Empire. It's Damascus, which is the present day capital of the modern state of Syria. It's Nineveh, which scholars for years said was a fairy-tale city. The Bible was wrong, it can't be trusted, and then it was discovered. The ruins thereof were discovered under the sands of the desert in northern Iraq, just across the river from Mosul, modern-day Mosul. So Nineveh's ruins are there. And then you have the city of Babylon, okay, all associated with these kingdoms. And they kind of form a triangle. And in that triangle, that area between those three cities was part of ancient Assyria. It was part of the ancient kingdom of Babylon. It was part of the Greek Empire. It became part of the king of the north's realm of influence. And. It was a part of the Roman Empire. So it's very possible that the Antichrist could be part of all of that because it was all associated with ancient Syria. Now what about his ethnicity as a Jew? It's very interesting because for centuries in the ancient realm of Syria that I've just mentioned, there were large communities of Jewish people living there particularly in a place called Aleppo. In fact, one of the oldest Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered was what's called the Aleppo Codex. It was from the city of Aleppo in Syria. Okay? There were large communities of Syrian Jews living in Aleppo and Damascus for centuries. And it was in the early 20th century that a large percentage of them were forced to flee, and they immigrated to the United States, to South America, and to the modern state, or what would become the modern state of Israel. Today, there are no Jews in Syria. They've all left. They were there for a long period of time, and then they fled because of persecution. One of the largest Syrian Jewish communities outside of Israel today is in, of all places, Brooklyn, New York. So, there is a large community of Jews that were Syrian Jews. Their fathers were Syrian Jews in the realm of ancient Assyria, ancient Babylon, ancient Greece, the Roman Empire, who immigrated to New York. Now, when we think about America today, okay, culturally, spiritually, religiously, morally, what is it? It's Babylon. It's Rome, it's Greece, it's everything that was wrong with all of these Gentile kingdoms is right here today. Repeating itself. Okay, so, is it possible from these clues that Antichrist will be an American Jew? I think that's possible. I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. the American Jewish population so closely resembles the Jews of ancient times that refused to go back to the land but stayed in Babylon. They stayed in Babylon and incorporated pagan practices and secular practices that that show itself in today's rabbinic Judaism. So, are we talking about an American Jew? An American Jew from New York, from a Syrian Jewish population would mean he would be an Assyrian. He would be out of the Roman Empire. He would be out of the Greek part of the Roman Empire. He would be out of the realm of the King of the North. I just find that very interesting. Now, there was a very famous rabbi. I don't know that he was of Syrian origin. I think he was of uh, European origin that died in 1994 up in New York. He was very influential. His name was Rabbi Schneerson, a very cheesy-looking elderly gentleman. Stickers of him can be found all over Israel, and he's waving at the camera with the little hat on and the penguin outfit. And... uh, there's a lot of people today that believe he's the Messiah. And there, is, there are groups of Jews who gather at his residence in New York every Sabbath and stand outside the house waiting for him to come back because they believe he's the Messiah. Now, he never claimed to be the Messiah, but they think he is. And so all of a sudden, it's okay with Jews that Messiah has to come twice because they've always said that it, he only comes once and that Jesus is not the Messiah. But when it's Mr. Schneerson well, okay, maybe Messiah did have to die and now He'll come back and be our Messiah. So it's funny, the hypocrisy there. But um, it's funny that there are Jews who believe a, an American Jew from New York is the Messiah. So is it hard to believe this could be the case where Antichrist is concerned? Just something to think about. We do know these things about Him. His coming will be very deceptive. His coming will lead many people astray. But there are clues to protect us from that. There's clues to protect the Jews from that, just like there were when Messiah came. There was plenty of evidence in the Scripture that the Jews should have known the coming of their Messiah, but they missed it. Some did. There's just as many details for the Jews about the coming of the false Messiah. There are those that will recognize Him, but there are those who won't. They'll be deceived. And there's many in the church who don't recognize the biblical Jesus Christ, who don't know the biblical Jesus Christ, they've neglected the Scriptures, and when Messiah comes for His church and raptures us away, they'll be left behind, and then they'll be deceived to think that this Syrian Jew is the Messiah. Is Jesus reincarnated? And they'll bow down to His feet, and there'll be no help for them. A spirit of delusion from the Lord. It's kind of interesting that early Christians, if you look back over the first four centuries of the church, they believed that Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. That was the belief of the early church. Okay, He would be a son of Israel versus a son of David, as Messiah is. And if you look back over the history of Israel, the ten tribes were at odds with the tribe of Judah, or the, 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 tribe, the, the, the tribe of David, okay? And those that were brought into the tribe of Judah from every tribe. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom constantly at war with each other for long periods of time in Jewish history. And the early church believed that the pseudo-Messiah would be a son of Israel, not a son of David, and they come from the tribe of Dan. There are some interesting uh, scriptural clues regarding that. Turn to Genesis 49, We've talked about the tribe of Dan in the book of Revelation already. Not what's said about him, but what's not said about him. What, what am I referring to? Anybody remember? Where do we not see the tribe of Dan where we would expect to see it in the book of Revelation? I can't hear you talk under your breath. Somebody know? I'm not asking for a chapter. I'm asking for a topic. Nobody knows? He's not listed as one of the tribes from the 144,000 witnesses. Revelation 7. Man, you guys need to go back and study. If I'm preaching up here just for you to forget, what's the point? Go study. Go review. I've got all those messages online. That'd be a good thing to listen to on a long trip and review. It has been a lot of stuff. But don't learn to forget. Learn to remember. Genesis 49, 16 through 18. Jacob is dying and he blesses his sons. Or has a blessing or something to say about each of his sons. Uh, We learn here about some things about um, Judah and... uh, that uh, Messiah would come from Judah. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, in verse 10, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. This is a prophecy of Messiah. But if you go down to um, verse 16, he says, Dan, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. So there's... A time when Dan would be ruling Israel. We don't see that in the history of the the kings. Verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. And then you've got this interesting statement kind of mixed in there. Verse 18, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. And then it goes on to talk about Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Joseph and so forth and so on. What does that mean? Why would would Jacob just pause and say, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. The early Christians believed that this was a reference to Antichrist coming from Dan. That he would be like a serpent in the path that would suddenly strike at the heels of Israel. Okay, So that Israel would fall backward. And when they fall backward... What's the only thing they can do? Call upon Messiah and wait for his salvation. So I think it's interesting that Jacob says this in verse 18. It points to the salvation of Israel. And when is that? It's when Messiah comes. And Dan is pictured as a serpent. He's one that's going to judge his people, and then suddenly, like a snake, he'll strike at the heel, and the horsemen will fall backwards. And then Israel will have to wait for God's salvation. So this is a reference to Antichrist, at least that's what the early Christians believed. If you turn to numbers chapter two, verse 31, we see the arrangement of the camp of Israel, when they would move in the desert and relocate the tabernacle. Numbers: 231, it says, "All they that were numbered in the camp of Dan." Were 100,000 and 50 and 7,000 600, they shall go hindmost with their standards. So Dan was put in the back. He was put in the back. Where if anybody would strike at the heels of the camp, it would be him. So we have another clue there. Coupled with the fact that Dan is not listed in Revelation 7 as one of the tribes that would produce 12,000 witnesses. Okay? So Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. That makes perfect sense to me. And Dan will rule over Israel for a short time, judge their people, he will be this Messiah. But then suddenly, like a serpent in the path, he will strike and Israel will fall backwards. And their only hope will be to wait for the salvation of the Lord. So those are some interesting facts about Antichrist um, that uh, the Scriptures reveal. He's Jewish. He's not an Israeli, probably a, he's an Assyrian Jew, probably maybe even an American Jew, and from the tribe of Dan. I think the scriptures indicate these things and they're not too hard to figure out. You don't have to read between the lines. It's pretty clear language. Another thing I want to talk about is not only will he be a Jew, but he has been here before. When he comes to this earth, it's not the first time he's been here. Scriptures are clear about that as well. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. There's an interesting parable here that Jesus tells, and we don't pay attention to what this is primarily talking about. Jesus tells us who He's talking about here. And obviously the principles of this parable apply to us, but He makes a statement there at the end that often gets overlooked. Look at Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Daniel, will you read that? When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Okay, we have an unclean spirit in a man. We have three stages here where the unclean spirit is concerned. He dwells in a man. Then he goes out of that man and travels around through dry places seeking rest. But then finally he comes back to his house, which is the man. He comes back to the empty house and he resides there with seven spirits more wicked than himself. He's in a man, he goes out of the man, and then he comes back to his old house. Now what's key here is at the end of these verses, what does Jesus say? Even so it shall be to this wicked generation. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. This is a picture of what it will be to the Jewish people. An unclean spirit dwelling among them. He goes out for a period of time, goes through other places seeking rest, and then in the end he comes back to his empty house and brings seven spirits more wicked than himself. He leaves and then he comes back. Who is the wicked generation? It's Israel. It's Israel. How do we know? Just look at the verses right before that. Verses 41 and 42. Who is Jesus talking to? The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And that Nineveh and the Queen of the South would judge them because a greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon was there amongst them. And they would not receive Him. And then He goes and tells this parable of the unclean spirit and says, So it shall be unto this wicked generation. That is Israel. Well, who is the house? Who is the house that the Spirit says, I will return to my house. It's Israel. Israel's the house that was indwelt and then left empty and then the wicked spirit comes back again. Well, then who is the unclean spirit? Not an unclean spirit, but the unclean spirit. The definite article there in the original language. That would be the Antichrist. And it says that he was there... Inhabiting the house, and then he left for a period of time, going through dry places, seeking rest, and then ultimately the house is swept and garnished and made ready, and he comes right back to it. And he brings seven more spirits wicked than he. What's this a reference to? Turn to Revelation 5. Remember, he's a counterfeiter, an imitator. An imitator of Christ, an opposer of Christ. What does it say in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, about the Lamb? We're in the chapter about the Lamb who's worthy to open the seven sealed book. It says, And behold, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. As it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. Remember we talked about the sevenfold complete spirit of God? And that, 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 that the Lamb of God pictured there has the fullness of the sevenfold spirit of God? Well... Antichrist is a counterfeiter. And we have this reference to the unclean spirit who brings seven spirits, unclean spirits, back with him. So we have a comparison or analogy there with what's said about Jesus, the Lamb, in Revelation chapter 5. Antichrist came once amongst Israel, then he left, he wandered, and then he comes back. The wandering is the spirit of Antichrist as it has manifested itself in many places and through many people throughout the church age. We know what John says in 1 John chapter 4. I'll read it again from last week. It says, um, verse, chapter 4, verse 3, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist, where have you have heard that it should come and even now ready in the world? That spirit of Antichrist has gone out and deceived many. It's manifested itself in nations, in wicked dictators, in false prophets, and false religions, and false preachers. Wandering, wandering, wandering. Never finding rest. But there comes a time when the house is made ready. It's swept and garnish and he returns to his house. If we want to make an application to what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 12, who is the empty house? It's the self-cleansed moralist. It's the person that thinks he's good, he's okay. He's cleaned himself up. He's a good person. He doesn't need God's help. That's the clean house that's ready for a wicked spirit of Antichrist to come in and dwell. And deceive him. Turn to Romans chapter 2. If we cannot take the principles of the Word of God and apply them to our lives, what good are they? Many don't have the spiritual eyes to see the Word of God as having principles. Okay, I've heard it said before that God's Word can't possibly speak to every possible situation in our life. You know, is God's Word going to tell me what color car I should buy? I've heard statements like that. And those statements can only come from a person who doesn't have spiritual eyes to see principles in the Word of God. Some see God's Word as restrictions and rules, when in reality there are principles that apply. If I'm seeking what color of car I should buy, yeah, the Holy Holy Word of God speaks to me. And the principles contained therein, can help me come to a wise decision. Yes, even about the color of a car. Whether to buy a house. Whether to, whether to uh, spend money on this or that. You see, the Bible has principles and these principles are revealed by sharing with us the lives of the history of the Jewish people who are a model to us, the mistakes they made. These principles are there. The Bible says much about needs versus wants. It says much about stewardship. There are certain colors of vehicle that reflect better stewardship than others. I mean, I can speak to that. You know, there are certain colors that don't show dirt, they don't age, they don't fade, and they preserve the value of a vehicle. There are certain ones that don't. So if I'm thinking stewardship, the Bible also has things to say about leading a quiet and peaceable life and being, being um, content with such things as you have, about our appearance... In our example, I mean, those can be a decision about whether to buy a cherry red sports car, car color car or something simple. I mean, there are principles there, but you just have to have eyes to see. The Bible's not rules and regulations, it's principles. If I give you a rule or a restriction, you have a rule and a restriction. If I've given you a principle, you have... A thousand applications to a thousand different situations. It's all in how we see the Word of God. A wellspring of principle or a list of rules and regulations. If you see it as rules and regulations and you have no understanding, you have no spiritual eyes, you need to get saved, my opinion. Or you need to repent because there's some sin in your life or some willful ignorance or willful blindness. You've grieved the Holy Spirit, you've quenched the Holy Spirit, and you need to be made right so you can see. It's only the spiritual man that understands the things of the Word of God. Not the carnal man. The carnal man is fleshly. He's saved, but he's fleshly and blind. Of course, the natural man has no understanding of the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. But Romans chapter 2, look what it says here when we think about Jesus' Unclean spirit parable directed at Israel. Because it can apply to us as well. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. Whosoever thou art that judges, for wherein thou judgest another, thou dimmest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Now that's not talking about proclaiming something to be wrong. I don't go out here and say homosexuality is wrong, but I'm living a homosexual life and thinking it's okay behind closed doors. That's the Pharisee. That's the hypocrite. That's the judging. There's plenty of people that live like that though. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. Not circumstance. Not feeling. Not day and time. Not, not technology. Not changing cultures. Not majority rule. And thinkest thou uh, according to truth against them which commit such things? And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgeth them which do such things, and doest the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his judgment and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath, against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. If that's you, if that's the so-called Christian, the self-cleansed moralist whose trust is not in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you're an empty house. You're swept and garnished. You're ready for that wicked spirit to come in and take up residence. And before long, the Jesus you think you worship is really that spirit who lives within you, not the Holy Spirit, there are many that are like that today in the church. If you claim to be a Christian and you think it's okay to be a homosexual, you ignore the Word of God, then you are an empty house. And an evil, unclean spirit has come and taking up residence in there. Wicked. But ultimately this applies to the Jewish generation. A, a wicked spirit, the people of Israel was there, he left and he's coming back. And that's Antichrist. Well then who in the world would it be? If He was there, who was He? What was His name? What did He do? Turn to John 17, 12. Jesus is praying His great high priestly prayer of intercession for not only His disciples, but those who after them that would believe on His name. This is as He is in the garden, awaiting His arrest. And He's praying verse 11 of chapter 17 and now I am no more in the world but these are in the world and I come to thee Holy Father keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are while I was with them in the world I kept them in thy name those that thou gavest me I have kept and none of them is lost but none of them is lost except Who? The son of perdition, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Which one of those that were given to Jesus was lost? Judas Iscariot. And what does Jesus call him here? The son of perdition. We have a very clear reference in the original language to a specific identity. Not a son, but the son of perdition. In fact, turn to 2 Thessalonians 2.3. We're going to see the exact same wording, the exact same phraseology applied to another individual. 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, that is the day of Christ, His second coming, when in flaming fire He'll take vengeance on those that know not God. He identified that in chapter 1. That day shall not come except there come a falling away first, an apostasy, that's the word The word there in the Greek is where we get the word apostasy from, and that man of sin be revealed. Who is the man of sin? Antichrist. He's the man of sin, comma, the son of perdition. Exact same words used of Judas Iscariot. They're both called the son of perdition. What other conclusion can a simple and unprejudiced reader of the Bible come to than that Antichrist was here before and he was in the person of Judas Iscariot? He left, he's wandered, and he's coming back. John chapter 6, here's another interesting clue. John chapter 6, verse 70. Not a whole lot of chapters in the Bible have 70 verses. John's chapters are long. Who knows what the main difference between the Gospel of John and the other three Gospels is in terms of its emphasis in Jesus' ministry. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of follow the same timeline. Matthew's more thematic. He's not as much chronological, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke we call the synoptic Gospels because they cover mostly the same events. Each has its own unique stories. There's only one miracle that appears in all four Gospels. Who knows what that is? No, that's only in the Gospel of John. Who knows what miracle appears in all four Gospels? Only one. Feeding of the the 5,000, that's right. But John's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel focus mainly on Jesus' Galilean ministry. Okay? John's Gospel focuses on His ministry in Jerusalem, and Judea. So most of John's chapters take place either in Judea or in Jerusalem. So that's kind of an interesting fact there. Jesus' ministry had two facets: the Galilean ministry and the Judean ministry. But John is where we learn about most of what happened in Judea, and his chapters are very long. But look at John six seventy. Jesus answered them, "Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil?" Okay. Now, usually when that word "devil" is used in the New Testament. It comes from a Greek word that we get our word demon from. I don't like to pronounce Greek from the pulpit. It's just a waste of my breath because we're not in here to teach the Greek language. We're here to learn the word of God. But it's the word demonian or demon. Usually when you have that word devil, it's demon. Now the word for devil in terms of Satan in the New Testament is a different Greek word. Like sometimes, devil comes from the word that we get demon, and sometimes it comes from the Greek word diabolos, or diablos, we say in Spanish, which means the devil. Okay? So, a devil is from the Greek word demon, the devil is from the Greek word diabolos, or in Spanish, we say diablos. Now, the word diablos or devil is only used in the scriptures of Satan. And right here in John chapter six verse seventy of Judas, it's not used when that when that word devil is used elsewhere, it's always demon, unless it's referring to Jesus. I mean, to Satan or Judas. So Judas is called by Jesus Satan incarnate here. He is a devil, not not a demon, but diablos, the devil. So here we have Judas associated with the devil himself. And we know that Antichrist is the devil incarnate. Turn to John 13, 27. It tells us that after the sop, when Judas was sitting there at the table, now Jesus told the disciples, he that dips with me in the sauce is the one that's going to betray me. And they're a picture there of Israel because Jesus told them exactly who to look for And then when Jesus dipped it in the sauce and told, go and do what you need to do, the disciples thought that Jesus had given him some secret errand regarding the finances and he was going to go out and buy some things they needed. So the blindness of the disciples there at the Last Supper is a picture of Israel in the days of Antichrist. They didn't even recognize it. It was that deceptive. But in John 13, 27, it said, after the sop, Satan entered into him. Judas Then said Jesus, that thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto them. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said, by those things things we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. So we know Satan himself entered into Judas. That Judas was called a devil, the devil and that he was called the son of perdition all qualities clearly revealed about the antichrist Judas satan incarnate antichrist satan incarnate revelation 13 right where we're at we've already read the first verse chapter 13 verse 2 and the beast which i saw was like unto a leopard and his feet were as the feet of a bear and his mouth as the mouth of a lion and the dragon gave him his power his seat and his authority. So the devil, the dragon, Satan gives Antichrist, the beast out of the sea, his power, his seat, and his authority. He is Satan incarnate. Another interesting clue, Acts chapter 1 verse 25. This is uh, when the disciples are trying to figure out, they're gonna replace, find somebody that had traveled or accompanied with them During the Lord's ministry, and that was a witness of His resurrection, and replaced Judas, who had hung himself on his sword, not by a rope. we got to get out of our American ethnocentricity sometimes when we read the Scriptures. But his bowels gushed out, and where he killed himself, the money that was used to betray Christ bought the field, and it became a burying place. If that's your reason for thinking the Scriptures aren't authoritative because you think Judas hung himself but his guts spilled out and then that's a big contradiction and you can't trust the scriptures. If that's your evidence, you really are blind. You're blind. Man, you need to get right with God. I fear for you. I've heard people talk that garbage on college campuses. They say the Bible can't be trusted and the best they can come up with is, well, the gospels say Judas hung himself but then Acts said it his guts spilled out. Yeah, the Bible also says an 11-year-old boy fathered a son. It's possible. Some people are willfully ignorant. That's a dangerous type of ignorance. Acts one twenty-five, Actually, uh, verse 24, they're to seek a replacement. They're trying to choose between uh, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also named Justice and a man named Matthias. And we see later they choose Matthias. I often wonder if the disciples were a little knee-jerk here. If that really was God's provision of Matthias. They were trying to do something too quick. Because we know God had already appointed another apostle. Or would appoint one to truly replace Judas. And that would be Paul. So I often wonder if what's happening here is typical knee-jerk reaction. That we're all guilty of in a lot of things. Notwithstanding, they're praying. And they prayed and said, Lord, thou which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. What in the world does that mean? That's never been said about anyone else, that they would fall and die and go to their own place. The dead go to hell and lift up their eyes in torments. Those that die in the Lord are present with Him when they're absent from the body. But Judas went to his own place. This is not said of anyone else in the Scriptures. Now we know in Revelation 11, that the beast... Or the Antichrist comes out of the bottomless pit. It's what it says about him in the context of those street preachers that he murders. Comes out of the bottomless pit. That word bottomless pit is the abyss. The abyss in the Gospels is that place or that abode of lost spirits. A place of of incarceration and torment. Remember when Jesus cast the spirits out of the demoniac and they begged Him not to send them into the abyss? It's a place of the torment of lost spirits. It's a place from whence Antichrist comes, the beast. It's the place where Judas went, his own special place in the abyss, not hell, the abyss. In Revelation 17:8 through11. Turn there. We're gonna, I mean, we're going to get to these passages, but they directly bear on what we're talking about. Revelation 17:8 through11. We've got this vision of the scarlet beast and the great whore and how Antichrist uses the apostate church to get into power. He uses ecumenical religion to get into power and then betrays it and sets himself up as God in the temple of God. Revelation 7, 8, The beast that thou wast was and is not. So at the time of... John's writing, he was and then he's not. He is not. And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, the very place we're told Antichrist comes from, and go into what? Perdition. There's that word again, referred to, used of Antichrist and used of Judas. So we know the beast was, he is not, and then he comes out of the bottomless pit and goes into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was, is not, that means in the time of John's writing, and yet is. And then it goes on to talk about the beast being the eighth king himself and goes into perdition. The same word used of Judas. Okay? Now when I think about he was, he is not, That reminds me of some language that's used at another place in the scriptures regarding someone. He was, or he is, and then the Bible says he was not. Who was that? Enoch. He was taken. He was not. He walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Judas, the son of perdition, was, but he is not taken. Taken by Satan for a specific purpose and there's coming a day when that spirit will come out of the a bottomless pit and that spirit is antichrist manifest in the flesh. So, antichrist has been here before. He was here in the person and work of Judas Iscariot that was used to betray Jesus and to give him up to be crucified uh, by the Romans. He's been here before, he'll be here again. Not just a man. A satan man. A devil, a true devil. There are devils in this world walking around in human skin, by the way. There are people out here that are devils in human skin. I mean, just look at their works. Look at what they say. We know this. It was the case in Jesus' day. Why would it be any different today? Half the people running this country are demons with human skin on. Republicans and Democrats. A lot of people preaching behind pulpits this morning around America are devils with human skin on We can recognize them if we study the person and work of Antichrist because they're his spirit. Revelation 9, the angel of the bottomless pit is called Abaddon or Apollyon. So this all is connected. Now this coming out of the bottomless pit that we see there is going to be connected, I believe, to the murder of Antichrist. Antichrist is going to arise and then he's going to be murdered. But he's not going to stay dead. Just like the, Jesus, the Messiah, the false Messiah, will raise from the dead. He'll die the de- death of the uncircumcised and then he'll raise from the dead and then all the world will follow him. And when that happens, there's a change. The pseudo-Messiah becomes the anti-Messiah. The lover of Israel, the friend of Israel, becomes the enemy of Israel. So those are a lot of things about Antichrist that are worth considering. Where he first appears, what his names are, what's his relationship to the church, to the Gentiles, to the apostate Jews, to the remnant of Israel in the last days. He's a Jew. He's been here before on the earth. He's somehow connected to Judas Iscariot. But we've got to ask ourselves, you know, we study this person, We think, you know, we believe Christ is coming to rapture his church, and we think, well, you know, you might think, well, why are we spending so much time on him? Let's talk about Jesus. Well, we are talking about Jesus if we're talking about his word. But we think, why spend so much time on this person? Because we're not going to be here anyway. Well no, his spirit's here. And we not we, we may not be here for his reign and his his brief reign of terror here on the earth, but his spirit's here. And it's constantly working to deceive us, to discourage us, to render us useless for the kingdom of God. And so if we know the man, we know the Spirit. And we can better discern him and better discern truth from error. That's why these things are important. Principles to be applied. But we must ask ourselves, what has to happen before the beast out of the sea? before Antichrist is revealed to the world. The Scriptures tell us there are things that must happen first. But yet the church is told to be ready for Jesus' coming at any moment. Now Paul says that the day of Christ's coming, His second coming, can't happen until the Antichrist is revealed. And the Scriptures teach us there are certain things that must happen before Antichrist is revealed, but yet Christ tells His church be ready at any moment. Is that a contradiction? No! Because what's written to the church is concerning the rapture of the church. The secret coming for the church in the air. Just like happens with a bride and her groom in a Jewish wedding. And Jesus talks about the Jewish wedding when He refers to the relationship between Himself and His people throughout the Gospels. The book of John. I go to prepare a place for you. That's all wedding terminology. So don't mistake the coming of Christ for His church. That could happen at any moment with the second coming that must be preceded by some things. What must happen before the beast is revealed? Turn to 2 Thessalonians again. Verse 1. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and... By our gathering unto him. So he's mentioning two things here the coming of Christ and something else, our gathering unto him. Well, what's that a reference to? That's a reference to what he just taught them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about meeting the Lord in the air. So he says, I beseech you by the second coming and by the rapture that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us. Perhaps they had received a letter that was supposed to be from Paul, but it wasn't from him, maybe some sort of forgery. that had them all worried, as that the day of Christ is at hand. The Thessalonians were beginning to think they were living in the day of judgment. Or maybe they had missed the rapture. Or maybe you were right here at the doors and they were in fear. And they had apparently received some letter and they thought Paul was teaching that. And he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't be troubled. Don't be shaken. I didn't write you some letter. You know, don't, don't be... You know, the day of Christ, you think the day of Christ is at hand. It says in verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. So the day of Christ can't come until there's an apostasy in the church and the Antichrist or the man of sin is revealed. Now the mid-tribbers, they look at this verse, I got in a good debate with a buddy of mine, and they see that word day of Christ in verse 2. And they say, well, the, the second coming is the day of the Lord. The day of Christ is the rapture. So the rapture can't happen until Antichrist is revealed. And therefore, it, the raptures will happen in the middle of the tribulation because you know it uh, says the last trump and uh, even though the book of Revelation was written 50 years later, the six, seventh trumpet judgments got to be the trump of God that Paul's talking A big mess. Not, not uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture. We already talked about what that last trump is. It's the fulfillment of the feast of trumpets in the Old Testament. I'm not going to get into that. There goes my finger splint. Thank you. But what is the day of Christ that Paul's referring to? He uses a little bit, he doesn't say day of the Lord, he says day of Christ, but what's he referring to? Well, it's obvious. Go back to chapter 1 of the same letter. People have no ability to read something in context. A text without a context is a proof text for a pretext, which is a lie. I guess that's the way my grandpa used to say it. And And therefore has no text. What does Paul say in 2 Thessalonians 1? Seeing it is a righteous thing, verse 6, with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's the day of Christ. He's already defined it. And then he tells the Thessalonians in chapter 2 that that day, that day of flaming fire can't come until there's an apostasy and the revelation of the man of sin. So the day of Christ here is not a reference to the rapture. If if it is, then you're ignoring chapter 1. And You're making a common mistake. Mid-trib, midtribism is wrong. It's wrong. It's foolishness, in my opinion. But Paul is contrasting now the revelation of Christ versus the revelation of the man of sin, and there's an order of events: a falling away, an apostasy, or an apostasy there in the Greek. Are we living in that now? Is there an apostasy in the church? Absolutely. It's called the Laodicean church period. Laodicea, the rights of the people, prophetically revealed to us in Revelation chapter 3. So yes, we're in the apostasy. We know that has to happen first. But the man of sin has to be revealed. Okay? The revelation of Antichrist, then the revelation of Christ. That's the order. But Paul goes on to say... That this Antichrist would be revealed before Christ comes to judge the world. And these are the things that he's going to do. He's going to set himself up as God in the temple of God. I've already told you these things, Paul says. But then look at verse 6. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his times. In other words, Paul is saying there's something that is keeping Antichrist or restraining him from coming in the world. And then verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity does already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That word let means to restrain. It's an old English word. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So Paul tells the Thessalonians, Antichrist has got to be revealed first before Christ can come. But Antichrist can't be revealed because there's something, verse 6, and someone, verse 7, that's restraining him. And until that something and that someone are taken out of the way, he can't be revealed. So what has to happen? Something and someone has to be taken out of the way. What is the something? It's the church. Who who indwells the church? The someone, the Holy Spirit. Now, the only way the Holy Spirit can be taken out of the world to open up the floodgates is if the church, the true church, is taken out of the world because the Holy Spirit permanently indwells a believer. There we have evidence that the rapture has to take place before the revelation of Antichrist. Only then can he be revealed. So what must happen before He comes? The church and the Spirit of God must be taken out of the world. The rapture must happen first. And then what will happen to Antichrist? It says He will be destroyed, not in a great battle with Jesus. It's the brightness of Jesus' coming that will destroy Him. It says in Daniel 8, He'll be broken without hand. There won't be a hand involved. There won't even be a sword. There won't even be a weapon. It won't even involve a hand. He'll be broken without hand. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4 confirms what's said here by Paul. Talks about the spirit of the sevenfold spirit of uh, of God that is upon Messiah. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 4, but with righteousness shall He judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth and He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked, the wicked one, Antichrist himself. Just like Paul says, the brightness of his coming, the breath of his lips, broken without hand. The the New Testament's not new revelation. It's in perfect agreement with the Old Testament. It's a commentary on the Old Testament. So, the church... For the remnant and the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, must be taken out of the way. This has to happen before Antichrist can be revealed. What else has to happen? The old Roman Empire must be revived and revised and assume the form of a ten-nation federation. This has to happen. In Revelation 13.1, the beast out of the sea has ten horns, just like the dragon does. If we look at Daniel chapter 7, the fourth gentile world kingdom from which antichrist will arise has three forms. Turn to Daniel. I know it's getting a little bit late, but I'm almost to a stopping point. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 7, John, I mean Daniel's having his visions of the four gentile kingdoms in chapter 2 Nebuchadnezzar's dream presented these same kingdoms as different parts of a great image, a great statue. Gold, silver, brass, and iron. Now that's the Gentile kingdoms as man sees them. But as God sees them, they're wicked. Just like the Antichrist himself comes out of the sea, these four Gentile world kingdoms that Daniel sees in chapter 7 are hideous beasts. So what's beautiful like gold and silver in man's eyes is hideous in the eyes of God. What is highly esteemed among men is often abomination to God. But we see in chapter 7, verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all beasts that were before it. This is the Roman Empire. And what's described here is the rise of the Roman Empire and its conquering of territories. But then, look, it's almost as if there should be a comma here. And it had ten horns. The first stage of the Gentile Roman kingdom, the Roman Empire. The second stage, and it had ten horns, ten kingdoms. And then the final stage, verse 8, "...I consider the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things." And then we read on about how this is Antichrist. So there's three stages of the fourth Gentile kingdom. The Roman Empire in ancient times, a ten-nation federation that's a revived Roman Empire... And then the beast himself who rises to power. When we look at Daniel's vision in chapter 2, that statue had ten toes. In Revelation 12, the dragon has ten horns. In Revelation 17, the scarlet beast has ten horns. Here in Revelation 13, Antichrist has ten horns. So what must happen? The old Roman Empire must be revived and revised and assume form of a 10 nation federation. Does that seem possible or does that seem something very distant now nowadays? It's very interesting. I read an article that appeared in a paper recently. Documents have come out showing that leaders in the European Union have decided to push for what's called a European superstate or a United States of Europe. And these proposals are going to be presented, I believe it said, uh, this next month. And there's a big debate in England right now about whether the British should stay in the EU or not. The Norwegians have never been part of the EU. They don't want any part of it. Right now there's more than ten nations that are part of the EU. But there's a push to make a United States of Europe, a European superstate. And If we study history, that has never been a good thing for the world. Never. Think of what happened under Napoleon. Think about the Nazis. This stuff's happened before. And so, yes, a ten-nation federation must arise. Whether or not that involves the United States, I don't know. But there are talks right now to push for that in the European Union. I find it very interesting. I believe we're at the doors. That must come first. But it could be very quickly. If you guys remember the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991? Was it 1? I was in the Soviet Union and I came home about three weeks before it broke apart and when I was there there was no indication whatsoever that this great Russian bear this great USSR was gonna break apart and fall no indication that the Cold War was over there was no talk on the streets everything seemed strong and sound and the Russian uh, the USSR was here to stay and then I got home three weeks later I'm looking at news footage of Moscow and the hotel we were staying in, I think a missile had gone through the front of it, and then all of a sudden the great USSR is no more. It's broken up into different states that have remained independent nations today. That event in our lifetime ought to teach us something very important. What is written here can happen quickly doesn't require a long period of time. It can happen overnight. And I believe that's what we're going to see with the rise of Antichrist and this ten-nation federation. It's going to happen quick. And the fall of the Soviet Union is an example of how that can happen. So, the restrainer must be taken out of the way. The old Roman Empire must be revived and assume a form, a ten-nation form Israel must be restored and planted in the land. That has to happen first. that already happened? It has, not completely, but the modern state of Israel and its birth is a big clue that we're approaching the end. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel and Jeremiah that Israel would be gathered in unbelief. You remember the uh, vision of the dry bones? These dry bones were just laying out in the valley and then God caused the bones to come together and sinews and flesh and muscles grew upon the bones and then they were an army of bodies. They were full bodies there. But then there's a second stage where you had this full body but there was no life. And God breathed into it the breath of life. Well, what's in Israel today are the fully formed bodies. The dry bones are no No longer there. It's the fully formed bodies. They still need the breath of God though. They've been gathered in unbelief. Jeremiah tells us the people would be gathered and then would come the time of Jacob's trouble. And then they would recognize their Messiah. We've talked about unbelief to religious to messianic. But the people have been gathered. Even today, Jews around the world are continuing to make Aliyah. Aliyah is a pilgrimage to Israel. In places where they're being persecuted in Europe, from France and other places, they are coming to Israel to live in safety. So the people are continuing to be regathered. And we know they must be not just restored, but actually planted in their land, dwelling in safety. Well, they're dwe- the Jews are dwelling in safety in Israel. You might think, well, you know, they've got all these enemies and terrorism or whatever. But in the Jewish parts of the modern state of Israel, those are some of the safest places I've ever been. Yeah, terrorists get in there, but so do muggers get on our streets. Terrorists get into our countries. But Israel is dwelling safely in the land and she is planted there. And Jews are continuing to make aliyah to the land. But we know that this has to happen before Antichrist can be revealed. And then the final thing, the Bible tells us that the Jewish temple must be rebuilt. That has to happen first. John in chapter 11 of Revelation is told to rise and measure that temple. Daniel in the 70 weeks prophecy tells us that the tribulation has a midpoint. The first half of that seven years Antichrist is a friend to Israel but then he enters into the temple and desecrates it and sets himself up as God and turns against Israel. Well that can't happen unless there's a temple. Second Thessalonians Paul said he's going to sit in the temple of God. So the temple has to be rebuilt. Has that happened? No. Could it happen quickly? Absolutely. The um, uh, Temple Institute in Jerusalem has already prepared many of the artifacts and things that will be needed that will be used in the temple. If you walk through the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, as you're looking down over the western wall, as you're climbing up to a popular place where uh, uh, Israelis like to go and have coffee and, and hang out in the Jewish quarter, You've got the candelabra or the menorah, the candlestick, made out of pure gold it's, or overlaid with gold. It's been made, not as a replica. It's on display right there on the street in the Jewish corner quarter encased in gap, glass. And it says on the plaque there that this is made to be used in the temple when that temple is rebuilt. It's already standing there. Okay. That's not a temple for Jesus. We Christians shouldn't be given money to support the Temple Institute and the building of the temple in Jerusalem. That temple's not being built for Christ. That's being built for Antichrist. And it's really sad that a lot of these Christian ministries, they, they love Israel and praise God for that, but they commit their resources to rabbinic Judaism and to uh, the, Jude- the false religion of the land they don't commit their resources to the Messianic Jews that are serving Jesus Christ in Israel. I think there's fifteen thousand, maybe, or my, my numbers may be off. I know it's at least that much in Israel today. If we're going to support Israel with our finances, let's support our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ there who are taking the gospel out. You know all this garbage you see with TV preachers, you know, talking about pro-Israel, pro-Israel. And yes, we want to support Israel as a nation, but let's don't. Put our resources into propping up what's being prepared for Antichrist. Let's put it into our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they don't get those resources. I've talked to people over there that are Christians and involved in Christian ministry, Jewish Christians, and they say it's sad because we could use the support and the help to preach the gospel, but these ministries are propping up the rabbis in Rabbinic Judaism. It's a travesty. But the temple must be rebuilt. Israel must be restored and planted in the land. The old Roman Empire must assume its final form or its form of a ten-nation federation and the restraint must be taken off. The church and the Holy Spirit. So, take courage, my friends, my brothers and sisters. We're a restraint. Our presence here is a restraint on evil. As evil as it is today, our very presence is a restraint. And woe unto those who are left behind when the restraint is taken out of the world. Well, I'm going to be with you again next week. There's one final thing about Antichrist I want to mention and then we're going to get into the text and we'll go as far as the Lord allows. One final thing to keep in mind and I want you to ponder upon it this week. Turn to Isaiah 10.5. Okay, We started out this morning in Isaiah 10, verse 24. Let's go back to Isaiah in this study of Revelation and let's look at verse 5. The Assyrian is the Antichrist. Verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. The Assyrian, the Antichrist here, is called the rod of God's anger. If you go down, he's described all throughout chapter 10 here. Verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith. Antichrist is used by God to bring judgment on Israel and then he boasts in himself just like Pharaoh did. And it says, is the axe being swung going to boast itself against the one swinging it? Antichrist is the axe in God's hand. He's the rod of God's anger. He's the instrument of God's judgment. Ponder on that. Ponder on that. We'll talk about that a little more next week. And we'll dive into the text.